0: Hey, I'm Adam. And I'm Brian. Of Everyone Has a Podcast, and you're listening to Pop Goes Your World. I'm Chris McBrien, and the pop culture from Generation X is everything to
1: me. And I'm Derek Myers, and I'm here to educate Chris on the great pop culture of today's generation.
0: Episode 167, 12 Monkeys
1: Movie Review.
0: back. I'm Chris McBrien along with Derek Myers, and this is Pop Goes World, the pop culture podcast for the generations. Derek, how's it going,
1: my friend? Hey, Chris, it's going well, thanks. I'm uh, I'm feeling a little pop culture podcast withdrawal since we haven't had a chance to do this in a couple of weeks. I know we've had the past couple of weeks off.
0: I had a flood in my house so I had to move the family out into a rental home for a couple of weeks while they ripped up my entire main floor. But uh, yeah, we're back. Anyway, before we get started, I just wanted to mention one thing before I ask you about pop culture. I want to say a big happy birthday to Kurt Kalin. Now, Kurt is the lead guitarist for the 100th Meridian. They're a tragically hip cover band, and he's a good friend of the podcast in today's his birthday. So I want to say happy birthday to Kurt. Happy birthday, Kurt. Absolutely. So, uh, couple of weeks off. What's uh, what's new in pop culture in your world, my friend? I've got a couple things myself too. Well,
1: I I've had a lot of time mm-hmm. to watch a lot of movies and a lot of television. You always and do. I know. I always now seem to be able to find it. the time. Yeah. I, I although I have been probably busier the last two weeks in my day job than i've been in the last two months so it's kind of funny that you know that old saying if you want something done give it to the busiest guy that's that's (laughs) That's been me the last two weeks (laughs) it's just they've been piling on the work and it's been good i find that you know when you're busy the time tends to fly by a little quicker and i've always said it is harder to look busy than to actually be busy and uh yeah, so anyway, that's neither here nor there. Uh, I'm, I'm just going to focus in on a couple of things specifically around television this week. Okay, sure. So two things that I've been watching, and one, to no surprise, is a documentary series, but uh, we'll do the other one first. The big uh, the big kid on the playground, The, the probably one of the newest, hottest shows out right now, is part of the Marvel Cinematic Universe through the Disney Plus Network. It is called WandaVision. Have you heard about this? Chris? I've heard about it, but I don't know much about it, so please educate me. It sounds like so, something for the young kids. Uh, yes and no. And this is one of those rare instances where I think that you might actually like it more than you think. So is it on Disney uh, plus it is on Disney okay. plus because Marvel is now all their movies are now owned and run through Disney okay. and it is a, we'll call it a sitcom, meta sitcom parody drama. It's kind of bizarre It because I didn't know anything about it coming in other than it was part of the Marvel universe. I, I was totally blocked, totally blown away, totally lost. So it runs uh the episodes run about a half an hour. I think there's only gonna be between eight and ten episodes. The the first day when it dropped, they dropped two episodes, and then we've seen four so far. So this is now we're gonna see the fifth episode tomorrow. And the way that it's set up is the two main characters, Wanda and Vision, hence the WandaVision title, okay. um, uh, from the Avengers franchise are characters in a 1950s sitcom. The first episode looked just like the Dick Van Dyke show. Then in the second episode, it's a little bit newer and now it's the, like the sixties or the seventies. I can't remember this. It was the sixties. And then the third episode was like the seventies. It was like the Brady bunch. They became in color and they had all the seventies styles. And so each episode has reflected the look, the feel, the style, the cinematography, the costumes, Of the era that the show is supposed to be set in, but they don't really explain why. So the two main characters are very much aware of what we're aware of from the Marvel Cinematics uh, universe, but the characters they interact with don't really seem to understand that they're, they're like, you don't really know why, why they're in what is effectively a television world. And so it's not until the fourth episode that they start to pull the curtain back a little bit and give you a sense of why some of this stuff is happening, but it's still a lot of mystery. So I think Chris, uh, try watching the first episode, and I think you're probably going to like it more than you think because I know you really dig some of those old nostalgic um, uh, sitcoms from like way back in the day. I do. Uh, I'm actually
0: I'm actually looking for a new show to, to start
1: watching, so maybe I'll have to look into that. I'll talk a bit more about that maybe next week because
0: I got something. Else sure. I
1: want to talk yeah. About. Well, and I'm going to obviously there's. Uh, they've only dropped four episodes. There's a new one coming tomorrow, so mm-hmm. maybe even wait until it drops its uh, the full run of the show, which I, I want to say is eight episodes, and I'll, I'll keep you posted on how it how it progresses. Please, the other you, one did you get a documentary? Yes. Uh, yeah, I'm about just about to. For 40, 40 days and 40 nights, he watches
0: documentaries. He likes to learn about the world. It's Derek's documentaries. Derek's documentaries.
1: What documentary do you have for us oh, this right. week? I I got to admit that theme song's kind of growing on me. <laughs> yes, yeah, Love it. Uh, I I, yes. I could say something negative, but I know that you really I really hurt your feelings the last time. <laughs> I'm so pretty well, sensitive I, about these. Yeah, sounds. okay, uh, so. After Christmas, I just did my television cable package and I have access to a bunch of new channels that I I didn't previously have access to. And I've been exposed to a lot of new programming that I didn't know existed or that I just never had access to in the past. One of the channels that uh, we're getting is this, um, it's it's a gaming channel, like for video games. I think it's like the GX channel or something. And um, most of the programming on this channel are around like video games it's like people doing live streams and giving their commentary or it's like you know what are the new video game trailers dropping it's a lot of like what's happening in the world of video games which does not really appeal to me because i'm not a video gamer at all but i just happened to be flicking by it the other day and there was a guy talking about star wars action figures and i'm like what's this all about so it's a 10-part documentary series and it's called action figure adventure and the premise is And it's Canadian because the channel is Canadian. They got a lot of Canadian programming on it. It's a guy from London, Ontario, which is not too far from where we are. And he's trying to raise money for a local hospital. I think I I missed the first episode, unfortunately. But in the recaps, I'm sort of getting the gist of it. I think he's recently lost people in his life to various illnesses. And so he's trying to give back. He's he's like uh, trying to figure out a way to donate some money. So what he's done is he's like a huge action figure collector kind of guy. He's like, looks like he's in probably his late twenties, early thirties. And he's got this massive collection of, of toys and action figures from the eighties and nineties. And he's decided to travel around Ontario and some of the U S and try and find some of the most rare action figure collectibles and then have a big auction and give all the, all the, the proceeds away to this uh, local hospital and the local charities uh, in his neighborhood. And so Again, I missed the first episode, so I'm not sure how he landed on his budget, but he's got like about five grand. So not a huge budget, but every episode he's visiting hobby shops, toy stores, conventions, and he's he's got his wish list of certain things he's looking for. So he wants some G.I. Joe stuff, some He-Man stuff, some Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles stuff um, and uh, Transformers stuff. And Those old as
0: wrestlers? there's
1: a little bit of that in there too. And so in every episode, he's going to these different stores and he's like looking, the camera guy walks around the store and you get to see all this, And he comments on, he's like, Oh, that's a really rare such and such. And Oh, this is the one that's from China. And Oh, this is the second printing of like the guy just knows so much about it. And they intercut that with interviews of, industry people that he's obviously met at these conventions so it's like a guy who did marketing for Hasbro in the 80s and an executive from Mattel from the 80s and 90s and then a lot of people who are like shop owners and fans and and it's really interesting considering that I know you and I both grew up playing with like Star Wars action figures and and other things like that and so it's just fantastic to see To walk down memory lane with this guy as he's looking for all this stuff and seeing things and going like, oh, I had that or, oh, I always wanted that. But then hearing interviews with people today about like how the industry has changed and how certain pieces have become more and less collectible and desirable. So, yeah, it's it's really good. It's it's 10 30 minute episodes. It's called Action Figure Adventure. And so I've got episodes nine and 10 on my recorder. They dropped this week. Um, And so I'm really looking forward to just finishing my journey with this, uh, with this guy to see how much money he raises for charity. But it's like, The things he's looking for are these like ultra, super rare collectible pieces. And he's having so much success. People are like opening their hearts and opening their wallets to help him find this stuff because it's for such a good cause. And almost every story goes in, they they offer like extra stuff to donate for the auction. So I'm kind of curious after all said and done how much he manages to raise. But it's uh, it was it's blowing my mind with nostalgia as I watch it. So I have a question for you. You mentioned when we were kids, we liked playing with the Star Wars
0: action figures. And I certainly did. What was your favorite Star Wars action figure as a kid?
1: Oh man, that's I mean, the the ones that always looked the coolest were were fun to play. Like I always liked just the regular white stormtrooper, Darth mm-hmm. Vader, Boba Fett, like all those ones that looked like like they had the masks. Um, yeah, but I don't know. I I think probably I always liked playing the heroes, so it was probably Luke Skywalker and the Luke Skywalker from the first movie where he had like the white shirt on and he mm-hmm. had the yellow lights. I think it was no the blue lightsaber that sort of went into his arm. And it had a little uh, slat that you would pull. Mm -hmm. And of course, you lose or break the lightsaber. So my parents had the genius idea to just replace the lightsabers with colored toothpicks, which we thought was genius. Yes, Uh, we Um, did that too. I think my favorite one was Bespin Luke.
0: Which one's that? And then the brown, like the brown outfit? The brown fatigues. Best been yeah. Luke from The Empire Strikes Back. I think that might have been my favorite. But um, I wanted to mention, uh, I have some pop culture stuff too. Yeah, fire so away. I, I, went, I got a rental house, like I mentioned when we had this flood. And I got a chance to get some pop culture in because they had a smart TV there. So I got a chance to watch some old TV shows, my friend. I'm glad that you mentioned TV, you know, because I got to watch some old shows. So I mentioned previously that I watched the pilot episodes of The Jeffersons and Fantasy Island. Well... I am very proud to say that I watched a few more pilot episodes of some TV classics. So I watched the, I I decided I'm just going sort of a binge and watch pilot episodes of old TV shows. And I watched the pilot episode of Different Strokes, The Facts of Life. I forgot Molly Ringwald was in the original cast. Oh, yeah. Uh, Watched the pilot of Good Times, One Day at a Time. That's the original from the 70s, obviously, with Bonnie Franklin. Not that... Yeah. Valerie right Bernelli
1: before yeah. she married Eddie Van Allen. Yeah.
0: And also, What's Happening. Do you nice. remember that show with Ron? Um, it yeah. was like... Uh, I never watched
1: it, but I know I know of it, yeah. It was like Raj and Rerun
0: and Dwayne and D, And of course, my favorite... I forgot. Like, my favorite character was Mama. It was played by Mabel King. Mabel King was absolutely amazing. Derek, I don't know... Have you ever seen the movie The Jerk with Steve Martin? Oh, it's been a
1: long time, but yeah, yes, I have. Time.
0: But Mabel King was the, his mother in that movie. And she had the best line in, the, in that movie, The Jerk. Because I remember when she, he realizes that he's adopted, right? Yes. which is an entire joke unto itself. But she looks at him and she says, son, I'd love you if you were the color of a baboon's ass. <laughs> And just the way she delivers the line it's just it's just so strong and passionate it it makes me laugh every time i see it but anyway she's in what's happening she plays the mama and i she was just awesome mabel king was great but anyway i'm just in absolute heaven with these smart tv apps
1: so nice well let me let me give you a little insight mm-hmm. so as we've talked about before on one of the local channels the chch from hamilton They show these old shows. You had talked to before about how you watch Gilligan's Island, and they used to show Happy Days. The Brady Bunch is on every day at like five
0: o'clock. Yeah, Yeah, so they changed
1: up their they changed up their lineup a few weeks ago during the day. Okay, and I have been watching Benson. Oh yeah, they started it from the beginning. Yeah, I miss I missed the first five or six episodes, but I remember I really liked that show when I was younger, and so I've been watching them in reruns and. They're they're better than I was expecting, but they're not as great as I remembered. Mm-hmm. But again, with any show, especially a show that ran, I think that one ran five or six seasons. Yeah, something like they, that. They tend to sort of get into a groove at, mm-hmm. by the end of the first season. And it's already yeah. clear that as I'm nearing the end of the first season, the shows are starting to get a little better. The actors are starting to understand the characters a little more. The mm-hmm. writers are starting to get a better sense of who these characters are. So I'm thinking by the time they r- jump into season two in a couple of weeks, because uh, it's on every day. Uh, it's really going to pick up, but yeah, that was, was when you were like, I've watched all these pilots. I'm like, Oh, I wonder if he's going to say Benson.
0: No, I didn't watch that one. No, now I know you don't love those old TV shows as much as me, but I, I do know that you do love. Here's your dad joke of the week. Derek, this, this week's dad joke has a lot going on. Uh, because of my recent renovations, you know, we've had to deal with some plumbers coming into the house and working. And because our movie this week has to do with going back in time, I thought it would only be fitting that I do a time travel plumber dad joke this week. Okay. Okay. So, so Derek. (laughs) I guess one of the hallmarks of any dad joke is you got to laugh at your own
1: dad. I was going to say, you're already laughing. I don't know if that's a good sign or a bad sign.
0: Okay, Derek. Derek, why did the plumber build a time machine to go back to 1978. Uh, I, I have no idea. So he could fix Ferris Fawcett and Olivia Newton's
1: John. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> hey
0: man, I'll tell you <laughs> that, that was actually pretty good. Oh, thank you. You like it? <laughs> hey man, at least I kept it clean. You should have heard uh, what I was originally going to have him do to Ferris Fawcett and Olivia Newton's John. <laughs> it <laughs> just say it had something to do with a roto router so well <laughs> Meister, the rabble rouser, passing the puck over. This is the best
1: trilogy of all time. Well, hold on, is it better than the prequels? Let's go into our Wayback Machines to okay. the 90s. Oh, watching well, paint dry I... is better than the prequels, right? <laughs> we basically watched
0: everything. I'm Canadian, so I love hockey. Wawa, baby. You're a wonderful human being. Everybody's got yeah. cigarettes, even the teachers. Probably not the best message to be sending in a Disney film. Just, just humor me for a second. I'm Canadian, but I can't skate. <laughs> All right, Derek, so this week it was over to you to nominate a film uh, for this episode. Last time out, we had Luke Tilly join us, and we reviewed Terminator 2 Judgment Day, and you decided to go with 12 Monkeys because it um, it related to T2 in the sense that, you know, we have someone in the future coming back in time to try and, you know, stop an event from happening. So uh, uh, maybe just give us a quick quick synopsis, just a quick overview of why you wanted to pick this movie.
1: Sure. So as you touched on, we've we've been trying for the last uh, few movie reviews to tie the two movies together in some loose and tangential way. And when we did T2, I thought, well, there's a lot of good time travel movies. And we've actually done a few of them already on our show. Some you've liked, some you have not liked, most you have not. And so I wasn't even sure if I wanted to go down the time travel route. I thought maybe we'd do like something with robots or something from James Cameron. But ultimately, the more I thought about it, I I ended up – I don't know how, but 12 Monkeys came to mind. And then I started thinking about it. I was like, yeah, like 12 Monkeys is about – uh, a post-apocalyptic future, which I know is your absolute favorite genre of all time, oh, and yes. much like in T two, where it's a post-apocalyptic future, and it's it's a story of uh, someone who is sent back in time to try and um, you know, I- in Terminator they come back in time to literally try and change the future. Uh, one of the things I did like about Twelve Monkeys is that they're not sending them back to change the future by changing events; they're sending them back to the past to um, to learn. Like the the how things got this bad, uh, because it's a it was a pandemic. It's a disease. They need information about like where did it start, where did it come from, and so they're not they're not saying go back and stop the disease. They're just saying go back and learn about the causes of this disease, so that the scientists in the future can can create a cure. Uh, which I thought was an interesting take on a time travel movie, and we can talk about that a little bit more in as we go through it. But yeah, at its at its core. Bruce Willis is a character in the future, and he's sent back in time to try and find information about this disease, which was um, – which they believe is it was started by this uh, radical terrorist group called the Twelve Monkeys. They set loose a pandemic and – Ultimately, I think they said something like 95 percent of the population died over the course of six months. And then those who were just naturally immune to it have have had to live in this post apocalyptic world. The disease did not affect animals. So the animals have basically started to reclaim the world. And there's this whole animal theme, animal motif that goes through the whole movie. And then it's this this back and forth time travel of, uh, you know, the the sort of the man at a time. But at the same time, the the idea of what does he know versus what doesn't he know? What does he know about the future that can help him in the past? And yeah, I mean, and it's Bruce Willis, who for the most part usually turns in a pretty good performance. I think his performance is pretty decent. His character's a little bit uh, left of center from what he had been playing up until this point. Uh, Brad Pitt has a uh, supporting role in this movie. I I thought he was fantastic. He was nominated for an Oscar for his performance in this film. Didn't win. Um, But uh, yeah, and it's directed by Terry Gilliam, who uh, is part of the uh, Monty Python, and the Flying Circus troupe? He also directed Time Bandits, which we've reviewed recently on this podcast. Mm-hmm. And he, he has a, a unique style of movie making that is usually science fiction based, fantasy based. It's usually uh, visually different than any other kind of director's uh, a vision. And from what I've read over the years about Gilliam, performers you know, fawn all over themselves to try and work with him, even though his movies maybe aren't as financially successful as, as say uh, James Cameron, but the performers really want to work with Gilliam. He's got a really good reputation for just being this, this creative guy. So in my mind, this movie uh, has a lot going for it. I thought it did have a lot going for it at the time. I I really enjoy this movie, which is part of the reason I've recommended it. And uh, we'll get into the details of it as we go. And Without further ado, I want to know, did you uh, dislike it, hate it, or never want to watch it again? Gouge your eyes out, because I think those are usually your three categories to (laughs) pick from.
0: Well, I I will start out by saying I'd never seen this movie before, uh, even though it came out back in 95 um but that doesn't mean much because i don't watch anything after 1989 right but right. i actually i didn't mind it i thought it was pretty good um i, I don't think i would watch it again to be honest mm-hmm. with you but i'm glad you mentioned uh, terry gilliam i want to take a, a look at this movie <clears throat> from a couple of different angles and uh i'm glad you mentioned terry gilliam like i said because i think we need to talk about the director here uh, you know he he was the only member of <clears throat> monty python that wasn't british right He he's an american from minnesota Right. And it's funny, you know, if you would have went back to the 70s, if you would have told me, if you'd have told anybody that a member of, you know, Monty Python's Flying Circus was going to become a director, I'm pretty sure everyone would have thought, you know, that, you know, he'd go on to direct, you know, some, some of the great comedies of all time. Yeah. But no, Terry Gilliam just like flipped all that on its head and instead directed all these films that are bizarre and they're like these mind bending fantasies. And really creative. And it's just, you know, not in his, you know, sort of typical genre of comedy. Um, Mm -hmm. And and you also mentioned the Academy Awards, which I think is important because Brad Pitt did get nominated. Um, I'm usually not a big proponent of movies that get nominated for Best Director but then don't get nominated for Best Picture. But after watching this movie, I think I could make the argument. Maybe for one of the first times. Because I didn't overall love the film. I don't think the film should have been nominated for Best Picture. It was just a little bit too bizarre and trippy for me. Yeah. But I thought Terry Gilliam's direction should have been nominated for Best Director. He wow. did, he, he should have got some love for this. Like, when when you, especially when you consider the directors that were nominated that year. Like, Mel Gibson was nominated one for Braveheart. Like, Chris Noonan was direct, uh, nominated for Br- Babe um Tim Robbins for dead man walking Mike Figgis for leaving Las Vegas like that one and Michael Radford
1: for Il, Il Postino the postman I think mm. Terry Gilliam should have been nominated for sure yeah I mean I I think one of the reasons I really enjoy like I'm a big sci-fi nerd at the uh, you know this this checks a lot of my boxes including the science fiction time travel it's got Bruce Willis got pit like it's got a lot of Terry Gilliam obviously a lot of good things going for it but the uh, the visual style of any science fiction movie especially something with time travel or something where you're you're it's a sci-fi look to your to the future it it gives the director a tremendous amount of latitude they can they can make the future look however they want because we're not in the future yet and by the time we are people probably aren't going to care um so it's always interesting to see how they put that together and and to your point i think just the the way that Gilliam's style combined with the visuals and this this like dark like the whole idea is that the people who have survived this plague have had to basically go underground partly I guess to survive from the elements and partly to with the with the animals re-inheriting the earth to avoid dangers from the animals. Uh, so you you really get that claustrophobic feel when they do these scenes in the future where they're all like underground and the idea that this machinery they use is like supposed to be. Uh, I don't want to say cutting edge, but you get the sense that it's like we've had better, bigger priorities than developing new technologies. So it's almost like they've had to scrap together old tech and it, it's uh, yeah, it's just, it's this really strange. It reminded me of Brazil, which is obviously mm-hmm. Terry Gilliam as well. Um, but it it works and, and it's, it was so different from the kinds of sci-fi movies I had seen up until this point. And I don't think really anyone has done a fantastic job borrowing this style moving forward. So it really, even 20 years later, 25 years later, you watch it and it still stands out as as being so different. But it works. I think it works in so many ways. Mm-hmm. I personally think Time Bandits was his best film.
0: Uh, he certainly has a unique vision as a director. It's, it's definitely on display here. I will like he uses all these bizarre sets, like you mentioned. And, mm-hmm. and the, mm-hmm. the thing is, too, like he gets these performances out of his actors that they almost border on overacting, you know, but in the context of the film, they seem to work. And he uses lots of like wide angles and like tilted camera shots. I, yeah. I, I think he's definitely created a style for himself as a director. And like I say, I think he deserved an Oscar nom for this. The film was somewhat successful. I mean, it had a, a budget of $29.5 million. It made $57 million at the domestic U.S. box office. It grossed $169 million worldwide. Now, when you look at the box office you know, when you're trying to compare it for this movie, you got to look at 1996 because this came out in December the 29th of 1995. Yeah. So yeah. And if you look at 96 movies like Independence Day and Twister, like Mission Impossible, like they were The Rock, which we've done on here, like they were ruling. Um, this movie finished 22nd at the box office. A couple movies ahead of it, like The Cable Guy, which I think a lot of people consider to be a bomb um, and Eraser and Phenomenon
1: and First Wives Club. But a lot of movies ahead of it were, you know, maybe shouldn't have been or whatever. I've seen every movie you just named. This was like <laughs> I, when I was at university and I was going to the movies every week and it was just before I started working at the video store. So when I started at the video store, it's like, what's just come out? I've seen all those movies. And believe me, some were better than other. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, yeah. The box office is always an interesting thing to look back at because
0: box office usually doesn't get it right, you know, yeah. for the most part. Um, I want to mention a little bit about, uh, just because we're living it right now, this whole idea of the, the virus, the pandemic, you know, yeah, that was
1: another reason why this one sort of was a little bit top of mind. And I thought was an interesting choice given the real life of what's happening now. It, it's, uh, you know, uh, another movie I've watched recently is called Contagion uh, by so- Soderbergh. And um, it's it's very much like what we're living through now where one person gets sick and it spreads and then there's a lockdown and there's, you know, all that stuff. So it's interesting to see a movie about a plague. And then now that we're actually living through it to see, like, what they get right? Would they maybe not get so right? Yeah,
0: a few things on either side. Because, you know, I love in this movie how in the future there's this massive, you know, worldwide pandemic. So Bruce Willis has to wear a a hazmat suit with, like, these breathing tubes and a ventilator. It's completely sealed off. Then he has to get hosed down. Mm -hmm. And right now, in 2021, we're living through this massive worldwide pandemic. And there's that won't even wear a cloth mask over their nose. <laughs> like, like, it's just crazy. And so, I mean, art obviously doesn't imitate life, you know, when it comes to pandemics, apparently. Yeah. But yeah. Um, I think it's interesting. In this movie, he gets in trouble for not following, you know, the proper safety rules. So he gets punished by having to go back in time, you know, and try and figure out this viral outbreak. Today, you do the same thing. You don't wear, you know, you don't wear a mask in a store. The only thing that happens to you is you get called Karen. On YouTube, you know, like totally different, different worlds. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the cast, which I thought was important. Yes. You mentioned Bruce nope. Willis. Yep. And at the beginning of the movie, you know, he's laying there. He's like naked and he's like all covered in sweat that's pretty much what he does in a lot of
1: his movies in the 90s, I think it seems. Yeah, Pulp Fiction is pretty much the same. Yeah. It came out, what? When F- Pulp Fiction was what, 94? 94. Just yeah. before this. So, Yearful. I mean, he was still in good shape. You figure in Pulp Fiction, he played the boxer. He, he got pretty beefed up for that. So by the time this one came out, it's probably like, ah, I still got the boxer's body. Sure, I'll do a nude scene. <laughs> Why not? You know, overall, I
0: will say Bruce Willis is, he's kind of hit or miss for me. You know, in Die Hard, he was amazing. You know, I loved mm-hmm. it. And I think when you first saw him in Moonlighting in that TV show with Sybil uh, yeah. um, Shepard. Shepard, you just knew he was going to be a big star, you know. But I, for me, a lot, in a lot of his like action movies, they do close ups of him and it just he, it comes across like he just like he's constipated or something <laughs> like it's he's, weird looks on his face. I don't know. Um, Brad Pitt, uh, you mentioned, you know, when Bruce Willis gets sent to the asylum and you first meet Brad Pitt's character, Mike. God like the thing is i think you know Brad Pitt is like this super good looking guy you know i mean he although he's not Matt Damon good looking Matt Damon but the thing is i think people forget just how good of an actor Brad Pitt is
1: yeah yeah i agree i and i was reading um in the trivia like the they obviously they they got this movie was made over a, like, I think it took a little bit longer than they might've expected. And then it was a little while before it got released. And so apparently they, they got all the performers in here had to work or agreed to work for less money than they normally would, which is part of the reason that it did only have that, what'd you say? Under $30 million budget. Yeah. Um, and, um, Excuse me. with Brad Pitt, he hadn't really had like his sort of big breakout performances yet. And so at the time when they got him, they they basically got him cheap because he, he I don't want to say he was a nobody, but it's um, his, his career hadn't, uh, you know, catapulted him to the A-list mm-hmm. yet. So that that was one of the, the sort of the saving graces of this movie. Um, yeah. So just before this came out, Legends of the Fall 7 and Interview with the Vampire were all came out while he was shooting this. So it was like those three movies hit, and everyone's like, "Oh my god, the guy from Sevens in a sci-fi movie!" And it's like, "Yeah, we're all here," and um, and yeah, I was reading that in order for him to to sort of uh, be able to do all that rapid fire dialogue, there was a little bit of concern that oh, is he you know his house is how's his acting chops? Can he really get this done? And uh, they had confidence he could with enough takes. And apparently, uh, Gilliam basically said to him, "I want you to stop smoking." And because at the time, Brad Pitt was a really heavy smoker. And he said, like, two, three days later, he was going for, through withdrawal. They had him do the scene. First time through, he's like, perfect. You got it. <laughs> nice. And I was like, oh, nice. Well, I don't know. Like, yeah, he's, a, he's great. Yeah. He is good.
0: He's not, he's not just a pretty face. You know, like, I mean, like, the, the guy can flat out act. Like you mentioned, he was nominated for an Oscar. Rightly so, I think. Mm. Um, it was funny. I was watching the movie and I was convinced that one of the doctors on the panel, like, in the future, mm-hmm. I thought one of them was the guy that played the brother in *Night of the Living Dead*, that actor's name was Russell Streiner, but I checked and it wasn't him. But you know who it was, though? It was no. Frank Gorshin, the Riddler from the old Batman. Oh, from TV the old series. Batman?
1: Yeah, the one with Adam nice. West
0: and Burt Ward. Yeah. Oh my Batman.
1: god! Now that you mentioned that, yeah, yeah. that's okay. So I don't know
0: I just that, that kind of jumped out to me. Um, so a couple other things about this movie I want to mention: *Vertigo*. So. Yep. 12 Monkeys actually has some similarities to Vertigo. You know, in of yep. the plot, like
1: when you think about things like themes like memory and madness. You're talking about stuff. Hitchcock's movie, Vertigo, yeah. right? Yeah, just, just For younger audiences who are like, young, younger listeners are like, what's he talking about? What's Vertigo? Yeah. 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 So, you know, you have to look it up on IMDb and check it out. It's one of the you know, greatest
0: movies ever made. Um, and, and the thing is, Gilliam is this, you know, he's a skilled director, right? And, and I think any director worth his, you know, weight in gold is is hyper aware of great directors that came before them, especially pioneers like Hitchcock. Mm -hmm. And I like in the middle of the movie while they're on the lam, the two lead characters go to the theater and they watch Vertigo. Yeah. And then when they go to the airport, Madeline Stowe wears the blonde wig, just like Kim Novak. And she even uses the name Judy at the airport. And there's a quote that they, they, they say in here that's, the movie never changes. It stays the same, but we see it differently because we're at different stages when we rewatch it. Mm-hmm. That's and I just true. thought it was a great quote. And, and, and the thing is, too, this quote basically sums up the reason why I watch these old Gen X movies over and over again. And I think that's what makes the podcast so much fun around here, because when you go back and watch all these old Gen X movies, it just gives us a different perspective. You know, like the movies stay the same, but our perspective of them changes because we're at different stages. Right. Like Revenge absolutely. of the Nerds watches a whole hell of a lot different in 2021 than it did back in 1984.
1: Yeah. Yeah, you know? absolutely. No, I agree 100 percent. I mean, as as someone and I, I as someone who has studied uh, film in school and I, I'm pretty sure you have as well, mm-hmm. um, it's uh, yeah, that's that's one of the things you you learn is is the kinds of things to watch for the style the the you know the director's role in a film that what the costume person has done and it's those little details that when you're watching and rewatching now that you have a little bit of a better understanding about how a film is made you get a different perspective <clears throat> excuse me but it's same thing with just life and experience and you know, the real world, what's happening in the state, you know, I'm sure since you've become a father, I'm sure you go back and watch certain movies that when you watch them as, as just a guy who didn't have a family, didn't have kids, you thought of them one way. And going back now, you watch them as a parent. I'm sure that they affect you differently. And, and I think good art should do that, right? It should move you in a different way every time you experience it. So. You know, mentioning the cast too, I want to mention Madeline Stowe, because
0: I don't think like, she's not really super famous and she didn't do a whole lot of stuff. But she's an actress in, in this movie. You just cannot take your eyes off of her on screen. Like she has this screen presence about her. You know, I think Terry Gilliam just has this knack to cast the right people and just get performances out of them that just just work for the movie. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I thought she was really good. I got a question for you. The boy yeah. in the
1: in the flashback
0: scenes in the, the, the airport.
1: Yeah. yeah. Was
0: that supposed to be Bruce Willis?
1: Yes, yeah. So that's that's sort of the 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 crux of it is, uh, you see this sort of flashback, and I believe the movie both starts and finishes with the with this boy, which is sort of a signature of Terry Gilliam to start with the close up on the eyes, and he, the movie both opens and closes with the close up on the eyes. Yeah. And you get the and then so through the course of the movie, Bruce Why? Willis thinks it's a dream, a recurring dream he has where he's at an airport and he sees people running and he sees this guy get shot and he. Um, sees this woman with blonde hair chasing after this guy and out of context, it makes no, it doesn't really make sense. And then as the movie progresses, he starts to remember more details about it. The, the, the quote dream becomes more clear to him. And he even says when he sees Madeline Stowe's character, he goes, you've, you're the woman in my dream. And she's like, no, 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 you're putting my face on the person in your dream because we're spending time together. But what you learn by the end of the movie is no, 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 this is a, this is actually a memory uh, of the child of Bruce Willis's character experience and witness. So at the end of the movie, the grown up Bruce Willis and the child Bruce Willis are actually in the same place. Um, but of course, we don't really get that until the end. And Bruce Willis doesn't really get that until the end. Um, and there's even a few red herrings where they they repeat that scene, the memory the dream where it's different performers yes. as the guy who gets shot. Like at one point he remembers it as Bruce Willis or as, uh, as Brad Pitt. And then as, at another point, he remembers it as the scientist with the, with the ponytail. And it's like, you know, again, because your memory is imperfect and you got to think if you live through a pandemic when you're, how old do you think that kid was supposed to be? 10? If I'm oh, 10 years probably old even and younger Yeah. and 95% of the world's population dies, probably my parents included, I've had some bigger things to worry about than having a clear memory of this incident at an airport. Although I got to think at that age, that would have been pretty traumatic mm-hmm. as well, which is obviously why it stuck with him. So it's an interesting storytelling device where it's both that that red herring that it's pointing in the wrong direction, but it is telling and that it is actually pointing in the right direction because it's a memory. But I think it it goes back to that point you made where, you know, the story stays the same, but your your perception of the events reshape how you remember it, how you think about it, how you interpret it. So there's a lot of that that happens through the course of this movie, as there should with any good time travel story. As more information is presented to the characters and the audience, you should start to see and understand the story differently. You know, I always
0: have lots of questions on these movies. So I got got some here. So there's a scene when Bruce Willis, when he kidnaps Madeline Stowe, and they're in the car, and he hears the radio ad for the Florida Keys. Yes. And he says it's a secret message for him. What was
1: that yeah. about? He I I again, they she even corrects him. She's like, it's an it's an advertisement. It's mm-hmm. just a commercial. It's not an actual message to you personally. Um, and again, I think it's because in his in his real experiences, if you if you believe that that he is actually a time traveler. And that's one of the theories of this movie that he's not a time traveler. He's just a crazy cuckoo loony. Mm -hmm. Um, But if you believe that he is a time traveler, as I'd like to think he is, um, when he was, we said what, 10 years old, when he's 10 years old, the world changes. Well, you're going to stop broadcasting radio entertainment. You're going to stop broadcasting commercials on the radio and you're going to have bigger problems in your life. And so the impression I got was he was so young when all of this happened, he remembers the idea of music. He remembers the idea of radio, but was probably too young to really understand the concept of, of a commercial. And so as a grown man, he's, he has returned on the radio. And then when he hears this voice, he just assumes, well, in the future, when I hear a voice, it's a loudspeaker, it's somebody talking. It's like, you know, uh, um, it's, yeah, it's a radio communicating yeah, to him. Yeah. They're time. like, ah, yeah, yeah. uh, you know, James Cole, please report. It's like, okay, they said my name. They're clearly talking about me and to me. So I think that's all it's supposed to be is just a a reminder of he's grown up without this. And so something as trivial as a car radio to somebody in 1990 or 1995 is a completely foreign concept to somebody who has not lived with that in their life for 30 years. Okay, that makes sense. I'll take it. Another question I had, the guy in the hotel room, like why did Bruce Willis cut out his teeth? In, uh... Earlier in the movie there, there was a like a homeless guy and he, he had like that deep voice. He kept calling him Bob. Hey, Bob. And he, again, you got to think, is this Bruce Willis just hallucinating this voice? Cause he hears it in multiple locations. And, um, the guy, when he interacts with him on the street, he's like, you know how they catch you? They, they have tracking devices in your teeth. And then the guy smiles and he's got no teeth. And they're like, Ooh, he's got bad breath kind of thing. And so Bruce Willis, again, I think he even says, he goes, I don't know if this is true or not, but why risk it? Because at this point towards the end of the movie, he's decided, I don't want to go back to the future. I want to stay here with this girl. I want to live a real life. You know, even though the world is coming to an end, I'd rather enjoy these last six months before everyone starts to die with this woman that he's clearly falling in love with. Um, And then even when his buddy meets up with him at the airport at the very, very end, and he's like, Why'd you do that thing with your teeth? Almost to like, Add credence to this idea that there is indeed some way that they were tracking you through your teeth. Okay,
0: so there was a few things in the movie I thought were pretty cool, and I made some notes. So the first thing I thought was cool, when he's supposed to go back in time to 1996, and like, I don't know, something happens, something goes wrong, and he ends up in the trenches of World War One, and yeah. he gets shot, and then later they take the bullet out of him, and they realize it's a World War One slug. Yep. I don't know. Why. I just thought that was really cool. That that I thought that was deep.
1: Again, it's a good good framing device for how do you, how does someone from the future tell someone in the past, like validate to someone in the past that I am from a different time period? So it was an interesting way to provide physical evidence to support what sounded like a ridiculous story, but it wasn't a slug from the future. It was the opposite way. It's a slug from the past that's 65 years old. There's no way you could have pulled this out of a guy today. That's what made Madeline Stowe believe him. Yeah, I mean, yeah. if you really wanted to do that and fake it, you probably could. But in the context of this movie, mm-hmm. it's unlikely that this character, as she knows him, would have had access to the appropriate resources to fake this. So that that was a huge uh, a huge turning point for her, where she was already starting to believe. And then it's like that was that was the moment. And then she found that picture where where he was in the trenches, naked, reaching out right. for his buddy there. Like right. Another thing I thought was cool was they're in the, this old warehouse and they have this big
0: gunfight. And then Bruce Willis says, all I see are dead people. And my wife immediately turns to me and she's like, when did this movie come out? You know, is this supposed to be a joke? You know, because this this actually came out two years before the, Sixth before sense. the six. Before the Sixth Sense, yeah. yeah. So it, just, it was a funny thing that I just kind of made a note of. And then another thing I thought was really neat, and it just kind of speaks to Terry Gilliam again and his directorial style. When Bruce Willis is put in that chair and it elevates yes. up the wall and there's yes. this round bank of... TV screens in front of him. Yeah, Terry Gilliam has a wicked imagination. He just has a visual style that is all his own. You know, we saw it in Time Bandits and in Brazil and again here. Like, man, the guy's a visionary,
1: isn't he? Yeah. And I I read uh, that that whole – that giant round ball thing with the TV monitors on it apparently – it was constantly breaking down they, they experienced a ton of technical difficulties with it. And the, the production crew was just like, forget it. This is not worth it. We are wasting so much money to try and get this f- 10 second shot in the film. It's not worth it. And he was insistent. He's like, no, it's an important visual piece to this scene and I need it and it has to be there and we're going to make it work. And eventually they obviously got it working. It's in the movie. But yeah, when I was reading through some of the trivia, that was one of the things they said was because of some of the bizarre ideas he had again, this is 95. So some of the technology was just not, it didn't exist, or Mm -hmm. they had to like, they had to fabricate it, which I mean, they fabricate stuff in movies all the time. But, uh, you know, as technology gets newer and better and cheaper and easier, uh, you know, these things become easier to replicate. And so this was still obviously, predominantly practical effects for the most part. And that was obviously a big practical effect that they were having a lot of problems getting to work. Anything else about this movie that we haven't touched up based on that you want to talk a little bit about? Well, I just uh, in general, like, like I sort of talked talked about a little bit at the top was I, I like the idea of the time travel movie where it's not we're going back to change time. Like every time travel movie you see, almost every time travel movie you see, the, the vast majority of them. The whole idea is um, the guy from the future goes back to the past. And either accidentally changes something to make the future change, say like in Back to the Future, Marty accidentally breaks up his parents and, hey, no, Marty, you won't be right. born and he has to get them back together. Right. Or it's a Terminator idea where the something has happened in the future that we need to change. We need to go back yeah. and change it so that doesn't happen. And I really like that with this one, the focus wasn't so much – the time travel wasn't the biggest part of the movie. Like obviously it's an important part of this movie, but it wasn't go back in time and change the past – the the concept and i didn't really get this the first couple of times i saw it like back in the 90s it wasn't until more of the more recent rewatches when i was paying more attention to the little details that they, they didn't say go back and change things it was all about we accept that this has happened and it it's going to happen there there was no discussion about oh go back and change the things it was this acceptance that What's happened has happened. That's history. And the character even talks about this it, where they say, oh, do you believe you're living in the past? Do you believe you live in the future? Oh, no, that's today. And he's like, this is all the past. This is all history. This has happened. And at no point does the character really start to say, well, if I start to make changes, I can affect how the future. It was very much I'm going in the past. I can't change things. All I can do is observe and remember and collect data and then bring it to the to my what's a present time for him, which is the future for us. And then they can use that information to move forward from that point. So I just, I thought it was a really interesting twist on what is normally the time travel convention used in these kinds of stories to drive the plot that changing the past wasn't part of the plot. It was, this was effectively a mystery. It's how did the plague start? Who was responsible? What is the 12 Monkeys terrorist group? How did they get started? And what influenced that decision? And how did that play out? And and how did this disease get from point A to point B to to cataclysmic? So, yeah, I just it had a in my mind it has a lot going for it. Um it's an interesting take on what can be a very contrived and and overused concept with the time travel, but I thought it was done very well and and like I said, I've seen a lot of movies about time travel and it is very rare to find one where that whole idea of uh, the accidentally changing the past to change the future or the deliberately changing the past to change the future is 99% of the time is the huge crux of the story. And I just I love that that, that wasn't the crux of this story.
0: Well, I think we a lot of times we get a bit of a laugh going back and watching some of these older movies in terms of the things that like sort of date them. And one thing that stood out to me with this movie, uh, there's a scene where Bruce Willis sees the Rolodex and he's like, yeah. what the hell is this? And the thing yeah. is, at the time when this movie came out, you know, it, that would have been played for a laugh because, you know, people in the audience would be like laughing at and think, ah, look at this guy from the future. He doesn't know what the hell a Rolodex is, but I can bet you a thousand dollars. Any kid watching this movie today would have no clue what a Rolodex is. So,
1: yeah, no, I agree.
0: Yeah, it just no, kind it stood out to me. I thought it was funny. So overall, if we had to give this movie a rating out of 10, what would you give it?
1: I'd probably give it an eight, seven and a half or an eight, but probably an eight most days. I think it's it's got a lot of those visual elements that are are unique and, and interesting to watch. And every time I watch this, I, I pick up some detail I didn't see the time before. Um, I think the performances, especially by Brad Pitt are fantastic. Um, and again, I'm a, I'm a sucker for a sci-fi post-apocalyptic time travel movie. So I'm going to give it an eight out of
0: 10. Okay, that's great. I think you and I are pretty much aligned on this one. I would give the movie a seven
1: and a half, and you mentioned seven and a half, maybe eight, and then went to eight. I'll give it a seven and a half out of ten. So we're wow. I'm much I'm, yeah. I'm very impressed that you yeah. uh, you liked it that much. I, I I'm always happy when I pick a winner. It's it's so. more that, I again. I didn't really love the movie itself, but I thought
0: Terry Gilliam's directorial style and I thought some of the performances elevated the movie. They were yeah, almost better than the sum of its parts.
1: Yeah. I like, I like oh, no. you had mentioned before about Gilliam's style of shooting. And I liked when the scenes where Bruce Willis is in the asylum and he's all drugged up, like the camera angles are all like on they're all, They're uneven. It keeps yeah. the camera keeps tilting with the character. It was, it's a very, um, it, it's a very interesting way. I want to say subtle, but it's not even so subtle, but you may not realize that the, the way that the scene is shot helps to really get you into the sense of this character's, uh, orientation and, and disorientation. So no, yeah, I, 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 I enjoy this a lot and I hadn't seen it either in a while, but like you said, it was, uh, it wasn't released until January of 96. And a lot of the, well, it came stuff, in
0: December of 95.
1: Like, yeah, like most people, yeah, it's wide theatrical release was until the first week of yeah. January 96. And I've been reading a lot of stuff, how, um, 2000 and uh, 2021, the year we're now, is an anniversary year for a lot of very big, important, uh, famous movies. And so this is one of the ones that I like there's a couple of podcasts I listen to where they're like, oh, this is having, you know, if you go back, you look at movies that came out 15, 20, 25, 30, 35 years ago from this year. It's like. A who's who and what's what of movies and this is one that that i they talked about on some of these shows a couple of weeks ago and i thought oh yeah that that's probably how it's it got me uh, thinking about 12 monkeys but it's hard to believe that it's 25 years old and uh, i i thought it was still really good and it had been a long time since i saw it so i was really glad to go back and watch it again
0: yeah it's hard to believe sometimes when we we think back on this stuff from gen x that that was 25 years ago or 30 years ago but i will tell you one thing friends do not tell friends that 1971 was 50 years ago <laughs> oh, oh, man. all right on that note let's have some fun with caveman <laughs> all right my friend 12 monkeys is a movie obviously with a number in the title and yes. not only that it's a movie that starts with a number okay so okay. i'll tell you what i'm gonna do make it easy for you all the movies in tonight's trivia are gonna be movies that, that have a um, a title that begins with a number Okay. Okay, so to make it easy on you, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you the year and the synopsis. You name the movie. Just remember, every movie title begins with a number. Starts with a number. Okay, Okay. so here we go. 1980. Three female employees of a sexist, egotistical, lying, hypocritical bigot find a way to turn the tables on him.
1: That would be 9 to 5. Yes, it would. Great movie and a great song. Oh, yes. Awesome. Okay. 1984, a
0: girl's sweet 16th birthday becomes anything but special as she suffers from every embarrassment possible.
1: You already mentioned Molly Ringwald. This is 16 Candles. It is 16 Candles. Congratulations.
0: All right. A little bit more in your time frame. 2004, a girl makes a wish on her 13th birthday and wakes up the next day as a
1: 30-year-old woman. That's uh, Jennifer Garner in 13 going on
0: 30. Congratulations, you're doing very well.
1: Okay, 2005.
0: Goaded by his buddies, a nerdy guy who's never done the deed only finds the pressure mounting when he meets a single mother.
1: That would be uh, Steve Carell, 40 year old virgin. Yes,
0: it would. All right, we're going to go. That was back a again. great movie. Great Nin- movie. Oh, it's wonderful. I love that movie. 1968. After, oh after discovering a mysterious artifact buried beneath the lunar surface, mankind sets off on a quest to find its origins with help from an intelligent supercomputer.
1: Is this the uh, Kubrick classic 2001 Space Odyssey? Yes, it is. Congratulations. Nice. All right. 1975. A criminal
0: pleads insanity and is admitted to to a mental institution where he rebels against the oppressive nurse and rallies up the scared patients
1: oh um uh jack nicholson this is uh one floor of the cuckoo's nest it is. all right 1987
0: three bachelors find themselves forced to take care of a baby left by one
1: of the guy's girlfriends yeah uh three men and a baby See, you've got this one, right? Do you know this? what the sequel was called? Uh, Three
0: Men and, and a Little Lady.
1: Yeah. Yeah, she was growing Not up. Not as good as the original. No. Uh,
0: and the original wasn't even that good to begin with. So, and okay. It was what it was. 2002, a young rapper struggling with every aspect of his life wants to make it big, but his friends and foes make this odyssey of rap harder than it may seem.
1: Yeah. Won him an Oscar for uh, best song, 8 Mile.
0: Indeed. Alright, see you're just you're sweeping it. 1979. Yeah. Hysterical Californians prepare for a Japanese invasion in the days after Pearl Harbor.
1: Oh, was this the uh, Belushi stinker? Uh it was uh it's it's either nineteen forty one or nineteen forty two. I think it was nineteen forty two. It was oh. 1941. Oh, Spielberg, I knew it was one of the two.
0: Yeah, it was terrible. All Never right, 1982. I heard,
1: heard it was terrible.
0: 1982. It was it was awful. And I love Belushi. I love uh, Spielberg. And that movie was just crap. Okay, 1982. A hard-nosed cop reluctantly teams up with a wise cracking criminal temporarily paroled in order to track down a killer.
1: Rocks it.
0: This was uh, 48 hours.
1: Yes, it was. Also in
0: 1982, a race car driver is driving to a race in a motor home with his race car on a trailer. His car gets stripped of parts. He ends up with six orphan kids on his way to a race.
1: I saw this in the theater, Six Pack <laughs> with Kenny Rogers. <laughs> Love will turn you around. Turn oh my god, yeah, that's totally the song. Yes, remember that? I always remember there was a line, and I think I mentioned this on a previous podcast that we always remembered as little kids where the the they're, they're trying to cover for him, they're like, where's your dad? And he's like, he's shaking the dew off the lily, and yes. he's like, What? Are you gonna whiz. <laughs> yep.
0: Okay. 1988, a dramatization of the Black Sox scandal when the underpaid Chicago White Sox accept bribes to deliberately lose the 1919 World Series.
1: Yeah, that was eight men out. All right,
0: 1994. Over the course of five social occasions, a committed bachelor must consider the notion that he may have discovered love. Wow.
1: Uh, wow. Oh, um... Oh, is this the Hugh Jackman? Uh, not Hugh Jackman. Hugh Grant one. It's um, the funeral and the... It's... Oh, my God. I know this. Give me a second. Give me a second. It's uh, four weddings and a funeral. Ah! Yes, it is. All right. Yeah. 1954.
0: Okay. A poor village under attack by bandits recruits seven unemployed samurai to help them defend themselves.
1: Uh, was that the original seven samurai?
0: Yes, it was Thanks. Chris. That was masterpiece, yes. Okay, and the last one. 1981, three middle-aged wealthy couples take vacations together in spring, summer, autumn, and winter. Along the way, we're treated to midlife, marital, parental, and other
1: crises. Wow. Uh That doesn't sound familiar at all, but I'm going to take a guess based on the leading language in your clue and say, was it maybe called Four Seasons?
0: Yes, it was with Alan Alda and Carol Burnett. Oh, very good. Wow. No, I never heard of it. Very Hmm. good. Never heard of
1: it? Oh my god! No, never heard of it.
0: Oh well, you did really good. You, you almost swept. And you just got 1941. Yeah, it's the nineteen forty one, nineteen forty two. Yeah, yeah.
1: Well, was I was thinking good. of the video game nineteen forty two. I guess. Oh yeah, the one with the airplane that came yeah. around and spun around. Because I knew the movie great. had has Belushi in the airplane, so that was where yeah. my mind went. I'm like, oh, it must be the same thing. Damn. Yeah. Oh. All right. All all right so well, good then. job. So I tell you what, next next show we'll
0: come back with a topic, likely uh, like one of our top five lists. Yeah, that sounds fair. Yeah, we can do that, and we'll figure out what that's going to be between now and then. It's not going to be another couple of weeks away because I've now gotten through the flood. So we're good. I'm back. I'm ready to go. So I tell you what, until next time, this is Chris McBride for Derek Myers, saying, thanks for listening to the show. And we'll see you next time here on Pop Goes Your World, the pop culture podcast for the generations. Thanks for listening to Pop Goes Your World. You can contact Chris and Derek at popgoesyourworld.com. Please take a minute and review the podcast on iTunes or wherever you download and listen to the show.